to get started today, tell a little bit, tell a little bit about myself here. I, I grew up in a very, very, very football-focused family. Not as much on my mom's side of the family, not as much with my grandparents. My grandpa always said watching sports was like watching somebody else eat. Not as much on that side, but on my dad's side of the family was really, really sports-focused, really, really football-focused. My dad played football for every year that he could for Penfield High School, and he was on defense, and he talked all about it, and he was my, my coach when I joined football eventually and played for several years, and he was the defensive coordinator there, and he was not dad then. He was Coach Hawksworth then. He was, he, uh, it was a very football-focused family. I picked the Detroit Lions as my favorite football team because I decided to. I don't know why I did, but I did. And I was really into following the Lions and football and all this sort of stuff. And as the years went on and on and on and I played more and I played more, I began to realize I didn't, I didn't like football as much as I thought I would. Or at least I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. Maybe a better way to describe it. I eventually took a step away from football in early high school. And from that point on, I began to distance myself from the sport. Was never mad at it. Never disliked it. If it was on TV, I may watch it. But I never really, I never really stuck it out. And I, I never realized until actually this year, I never realized that what had actually happened wasn't that I just stopped liking football, but that I became a fair weather fan. Of football. Do you know what I'm referring to when I describe a Fairweather fan? A Fairweather fan is somebody who only watches their team when their team is doing well, and then when their team is doing poorly, they lose interest and they don't really stay committed, but when they're there, they jump in, they say, yeah, I'm a part of this too. I never realized I was a Fairweather fan because the Lions had never done so good up until this year. And then I realized, oh, wow, this is, a, this is a new revelation. Talk about revelation. This is a revelation for me. I'm a Fairweather fan. I'm only in it. There you go. I'm only in it when we're doing well. I'm only in it when it's easy. I'm only in it when it's fun. I'm only in it when I feel victory or victorious or I feel powerful or I feel good. A fair weather fan. I posit this question to you this morning. I ask you this question. Is it possible to be a fair feather a fair weather fan of God? Is it possible to follow God when things are good? Is it possible to follow God when I like what I'm being told? When things are easier? When things seem better? When we hear way more missions reports of stuff going really well all over the world? When we hear about people coming to faith on a day-to-day basis in our church? When we hear about the, the community being impacted by the efforts of our people? That's when things are going really well. That's when I'm in and I'm like, yeah, let's go. We're on the winning side. Things are great. But what about when the call of the Christian is difficult? Am I in still? What about when I'm struggling with God? 
Am I in still? What about when I'm struggling with church or the direction of church? Am I in still? I think it's very possible for each and every one of us to fall into a temptation of being a fair weather, not fan, but a fair weather Christian or a fair weather follower, or as the, put a biblical term to it, a fair weather disciple. And I think that this is something that this passage points out very clearly to us that we're going to be looking at today is that it's so many times easy to follow Jesus when we're happy, when things are going well, but when we hear about the sacrifice that may be involved, when we hear about the difficulty that may be involved, when we hear about what is expected of us, our brake lights come on and we go, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know I had to do with that. And I just want to ask that question to you as individuals and to us as a church. You know, you can look at you as an individual and you can look at us as a local body. We are one body of believers here at Calvary Baptist Church. The question I have for you as an individual is when you think of a Fairweather fan, does that describe you and your actions? And if so, where? And the next question I have is does being a Fairweather fan fan describe us here at Calvary Baptist Church? Are we only willing to follow God when things are going well? I ask that question as I say the purpose of our study this morning is that we are going to see what is required of those who are not just fans of Jesus, but are followers of Jesus, or in this passage, are disciples of Jesus. What is required of us, the good and the bad? What is required of us, and what warnings does Jesus have as we ask that question? That's the direction we're going to be going this morning. So we're going to find that in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to be in Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark, chapter 8, verse 27 through Mark 9, verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read this passage to us in its entirety. And then we'll take some time and we'll pray. And then we will see what the Lord has for us in this passage. So if you would please read with me Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save him. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If you would, please join me in prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we come to you from different places. We come to you from different circumstances. We come to you with different highs and lows, goods and bads, struggles and victories, challenges and grace. Lord, though we each come to you from different places, we as the body of Christ, as, as those who would be gathered as your local church and others who would be willing to join us this morning, come to you seeking to hear from you. Some may come more out of habit. Others may come more out of compulsion. But Lord, I pray that in this moment, right here, as we are praying to you, this body of believers would be able to say, Lord, Share with me what you have for me. Anything else that's happening in this world or in life will still be there after this service. Lord, help us to focus on this time in your word. Those struggles and difficulties are legitimate, but Lord, right now, I think you have something for us. Share it with us, we ask you. Desperately plead for your word, for you to speak to us for you to tell us how we shall live this Christian life, how we shall live as children of the Most High King. Lord, be with me this morning. Lord, I pray that you and your perfect plan would use my imperfect words and your spirit would use them to connect with the hearts and souls of the people in this room and the people that are listening online. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and convict us where you know we need encouraging and convicting. But Lord, would that come from your Spirit's power, not by anything that we can engineer or design in our own hu human hands. So, Lord, we give this time to you. We give this study to you. We ask you once again to speak to us this morning. And anything good that comes from this morning, we wish to give back to you and to glorify you for it. So, God, thank you for being present with us right now, right here in this room. 
Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. We ask you to speak to us this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, where are we at in the book of Mark up till this point? We've been in it for a quite a while now, several months now. We've been digging through it, we've been going through it, and we've been asking three major questions. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus doing? And what is this kingdom of God that he keeps talking about? We're saying it, continuing to say it, reminding, rinse and repeat, get it stuck in your head. You're not going to get crazy kids songs stuck in your head. You're going to get these three questions stuck in your head. That's our desire, at least, for repeating it continuously. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus doing and what is this kingdom of God that he keeps speaking to us about? And as we've been saying that the last eight chapters have been telling us the beginning and the the continuation of the ministry of this man named Jesus. This ministry has been filled with several different episodes, several different accounts of miraculous powers of times when Jesus broke the laws of physics, broke the laws of nature, and miraculously healed, restored, or calmed even the sea and the ocean. Not the ocean, the sea, the, the Sea of Galilee. Thank you for that one. Thanks for, thanks for grace on that one. It's a lake, but they call it a sea. Doing these miraculous, powerful things. All at the same time, he has been providing teaching points, teaching through parables. He has been talking about this kingdom of heaven. He began his ministry by saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus has been running up against resistance from all sides been running up against resistance from the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all these different religious groups are in conflict with what Jesus says he is and what they think he is. Jesus has been encountering resistance with the governing authorities over him, the Herodians, the Greek and Roman pagan peoples that are oppressing God's people, He's been seeing resistance from them. And even in this last passage that we went over last Sunday, Jesus is even getting resistance from his own disciples. Jesus has been showing his ministry. He has been showing who he is. And people are still asking this question, who is Jesus? And Jesus is getting so frustrated that he calls out his disciples in, this, in the last passage. I love the last passage. I love preaching on that last Sunday because it showed the fact that Jesus got upset. It's a very human emotion. He got frustrated because even his own people, his own disciples, his own followers were not understanding who he was. And for eight whole chapters, we have been, no one has been understanding who Jesus is, except for the demons. This passage finds us, uh, we find Jesus on another trip with his disciples. He decides to take them far north, north past the Sea of Galilee, to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea 
Philippi. Just by the name, it's Caesarea Caesar. It is a Roman pagan city. This is a city that was not put there by God's people, by the Israelites from the Old Testament. This is a new city that's been put in since the Old Testament has been written. And it's a major city. It's a major city in this region of the world. It was kind of like, it was a place where several different highways kind of connected together. You know, the Roman roads, they liked their roads and they built their roads. This was one of those coming together points of roads in this part of the ancient world. Think of it like Chicago in the modern day. Chicago in the modern day in the United States, if you want to go west, you're more than likely going to go past Chicago. If you're up in Minnesota and you want to make it down to Florida, you're going to drive past Chicago. It's this place where all sorts of different major highways come together to one point and fan out in all sorts of different directions. It was a major city. And just like Chicago, Chicago is a place with a lot of different people that live there, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different religious beliefs. The same is true for Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was known as a place that had a multitude of different kinds of religious temples that were there. These temples were, there was a temple for the emperor, for Caesar Augustus. There were temples for Greek and Roman pagan gods. There was a temple for Zeus, the Greek god of thunder, the patriarch of the Greek mythology. There's all these different religious beliefs that are culminated there, and archaeologists have been able to dig them up and find them. This was a very multicultured, multi-ethnic, multi-religious place, and Jesus decides to bring his disciples there, and it's there that he asks the question, who do people say that I am? We don't know where Jesus and his disciples are at when he asks this question. Could have been on the road, could have been sitting around a campfire, could have been eating food, could have been, they could have seen all the different temples and religious practices and ideas and thoughts in their world. They may have seen all that. It may have just been a conversation as they're walking by. But he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? The disciples give him an answer, and as they give him an answer, we kind of take a moment and look back on all of the distance we've covered in the book of Mark as the disciples answer. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, Mark chapter 1, the one that said he would bring, he would level the paths, level the hills, and um, provide, or be, be the first, the one that would come to prepare the way for the Lord in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Some say it's Elijah. Elijah in Malachi chapter 4 and 5 talked about how Elijah would come back before the Messiah would come. Well, he's, you know, this Jesus guy is this Elijah figure who's supposed to prepare the way for the Messiah. Still others suggest, well, it's probably one of the prophets who came back. Could be Isaiah, could be Jeremiah, could be Ezekiel, could be Nahum, could be Habakkuk. Habakkuk, we called them that in our life group when we studied Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Could be any of these guys. And Jesus sits and he says, all these people are saying all these things, all these different ideas, but you guys, who do you think that I am? Jesus hasn't asked them this kind of question yet. Who do you think that I am? 
It's a very personal question. Picture yourself sitting around that campfire, if that's the place, the setting we're putting them in right now. Picture yourself in that campfire. Jesus is sitting across from you. It's cold around you. The fire is warming your, the, the front of your body. You just finished a meal, and he points at you, and he says, who do you say that I am? What would be your answer? We get an answer. We get an answer. And it's Peter. The guy that says stuff when he doesn't know what he should say. The guy that gets in trouble for talking too much so many times. The guy that's the butt end of many jokes as we read through the gospel accounts. Poor Peter. But it's Peter who answers him. And he just says very simply, you are the Christ. That's it. We've been waiting eight chapters and we've gotten to this point and it's just a very small little confession. You're the Christ. If you read this passage in Matthew, you know, it's a very similar situation. Jesus is Caesarea Philippi, they're talking, he asks, who do you say that I am? They provide all his answers and whatever else. And, and Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up and he, he says something a lot more powerful in Matthew. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, a very powerful statement. And Jesus responds with, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for man has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You are no longer named Simon, but you are Peter. And on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. Matthew really focused on all these different parts of what's happening in this moment. Mark just writes down the summary. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Great! Glad we finally got there. Years into Jesus' ministry, years of doing miracles, years of teaching, years of challenging, years of, of running up against issues. And we finally get the answer. And then what does Jesus say next? Jesus doesn't even tell him you're correct. Jesus says, now don't tell anybody about this. Come on, really? We've been spending the entire book asking the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus finally gets somebody to answer him, and he just says, okay, great. Now, don't tell anyone I said that. You know, keep it a secret, I reckon, you know? Like, what? What is going on here? What is going on here? Jesus is continuing that, that, that pattern of, okay, don't tell anybody. Do not tell anyone what God has done for you. Don't even go into the village. Don't even do this. Don't even do that. Don't even do the other thing. But instead, he doesn't say, you're wrong. He just says, well, don't tell anybody right now. But this, it may seem like such a small moment, but the power of this moment is indescribable. The fact that man, Peter himself, one of the foolish disciples, at least the one that speaks up, right? has come to an understanding, I would say, by the grace of God showing him that this Jesus isn't just some guy. This Jesus isn't just Elijah. This Jesus isn't just one of the Old Testament prophets. This Jesus isn't just some great dude. 
This Jesus isn't just some miracle worker, but he is the Christ. The word Christ is a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word for Messiah. When we say Jesus Christ, we say Jesus the Messiah. It's not like that was his last name. It was a title that had major significance to all peoples who were students of the Old Testament. Someone who was the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. Someone who was the anointed one of God were a specific task that the Old Testament prophets go to multiple, multiple times that he is going to deliver his people. They've had these issues for generations of sin all the way back from Adam and then Cain and Abel and then Noah and then Joseph and then Moses and then all these different people. All these generations of sin are going to reach their end with this Messiah and Jesus is him. We're halfway through our study of Mark and we've answered our first question. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the hope of the world. Jesus is not just some person. Jesus is not just a fancy miracle worker. Jesus is not just Some teacher, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus holds on his shoulders the weight of thousands of years of expectation of God's people that one day God would send someone to deliver them. And all of that is is revealed just in such simple words. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Who is Jesus? We can still ask that question, but we can ask that question now with an answer. Who is Jesus? The Christ, the hope of the world. We then move on to the next section. And this, I I, I learned something new when I was reading. I learned something new whenever I do these things, but I learned something new when I was reading this. And it starts in verse 31. I'll read... Let's see, where are we going to read to? Let's go ahead and read 31 to 33. It says this, And he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we get this confession from Peter. Amazing! And then Jesus begins something new here that he has not done yet in his entire ministry. He begins to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man a title that he has given to himself that has Old Testament significance, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And notice verse 32. And he said this plainly. 
plainly. He's not hiding this. Jesus has been so long hiding and keeping things secret and don't tell somebody and I'm speaking in parables to fulfill the Old Testament that that people will specifically be confused. Jesus has been speaking in riddles and mysteries and, 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 and rhetorical statements and hypothetical situations and all this sort of stuff and here it says he teaches them plainly. Also, it says that he has begun to teach them here. According to Mark's account of the life of Jesus, Jesus went this far without mentioning a very important part of his role as the Messiah. That being that he should suffer many things, that he should be rejected by the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and be killed and on three days rise. We're entering a radical new part of the book of Mark. This is the halfway point. However long it's taken us to get here, we're at the halfway point of the book of Mark. Be excited, all right? We've got there. We are at the top of the mountain. It's not all downhill from here. It gets better, but at the halfway point, he begins to teach them about not just who he is. They figure this out, but now that they understand that he is this Old Testament anointed one sent from God to deliver his people, he now teaches them what that means. And he doesn't hold anything back. He teaches them plainly. He's holding nothing back. And it's a rough thing to hear. It's a hard thing to hear. This Jesus who's been teaching these guys, who's been their, their, their rabbi, would have been what they would have thought of him as. Their rabbi, their teacher, their, the one they're supposed to follow, the one they're supposed to live for, the one they're supposed to live by, replicate his character, all that sort of stuff. This guy whom they have grown to love and understand as the hope of their people must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Again, put yourself in that campfire situation with Jesus and the disciples. We don't know how much time is in between this and Peter's confession that he's the Christ. Is it the same conversation? We don't know. The text isn't exactly clear. But this powerful moment met with now this very, very hard truth. It makes the disciples apparently pretty antsy. And it makes Peter so antsy. that, And I love this. I, I don't love it, but I love it. That Peter gets up and it says that Peter rebuked Jesus. Obviously, I don't love that. But just think of that. Peter just figured out, oh, you're, this, you're, you're the hope of the world. You're who I need to to put my complete trust in. And then it's flushed out, and Peter goes, no, I I don't think that's it, dude. I don't think that's right. And look at the clues in the text. It says that he rebuked Jesus. That word for rebuked is used elsewhere in the book of Mark. And one of the most notable places, that's the place that Jesus, that's the word that Jesus used when it says that Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves when they were out at sea. This word rebuke has a sense of like an authoritative slap on the wrist. 
It's I'm in charge, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Jesus rebuked the winds and said, peace, be still. Here, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no, that is not your role. Wow. How can someone be so right and so wrong at the same time? I think there's an answer for that. It's our own human foolishness and selfishness. And Jesus himself calls out Peter very rightly with one of the strongest challenges that I think the Bible has. He doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He doesn't say, get behind me, bro. He doesn't say, get behind me. He says, get behind me, Satan, deceiver, adversary, father of lies, prince of darkness. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, a good question to ask at this moment is, why, why is Peter so strongly reacting to this? I think that there's an emotional connection with him and Jesus. He's saying, I care about you. I don't want you to die. I don't want that to happen. I think there's a part of that that's very, very accurate. I think that we can read that from the text. I think another part is a step deeper. Because again, we are in an Old Testament Jewish context. In this context, if you were following a rabbi, which in this context he was, Jesus was called a rabbi many different times. You can't take the Jewishness out of Jesus. You cannot. One of the most dangerous things the church has done is taken the Jewishness out of Jesus. When you had a rabbi and you had his followers, the followers were meant to, what it says, follow him, replicate his behavior, do as he does. Peter hears Jesus say this about himself, and Peter says, wait, if you have to do this, that, that, that means that I, no, 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 Je- no, that's not it, Jesus. This can't be it. This cannot be it. Why do I have to do this? Jesus, this can't be the answer. Why do I have to suffer and be rejected, possibly even die? Peter tries to remove Messiah and sufferer. And Jesus, as strongly as he can, forces them back together. We think of Jesus as Messiah. We think of him as Savior. We think of him as Lord. We think of him as having authority. We think of him in power. We think of him as love and as grace and as kindness and as truth. And if we take that to its next step, we have to. We don't have a choice. We have to merge together Jesus as the Messiah and the Messiah's role to suffer and die. We cannot separate those two. Jesus so strongly fights against this. It's like saying that you can have a chef that doesn't cook. That's not a chef. It's like saying you have a builder who doesn't build things. That's not a builder. It's like saying that somebody who isn't married is a husband or a wife. 
You cannot say that by definition of the word. You cannot separate those. The same is true. For the Messiah and the Messiah's role to suffer, to be the Messiah is to suffer. There's another children's she answer there. I didn't mention the first one. We cannot take the cross away from Jesus. And if, as we'll see later, if we are his followers, if Jesus is, I guess you could say, our rabbi, our teacher, we cannot pull the cross away from ourselves. We get to the final portion of the message. Jesus, wherever he's at in this moment, I don't know if he's just angry, if he's whatever. I can't fully understand where he's at right here. Verse 34, to the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of verse 9, it says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is a very famous portion of Scripture, a very popularly read portion of Scripture. If you, if you read a book out there on discipleship, you're going to get this verse in there for it to be a good discipleship book. This is central. This is repeat. This, this is it. This is it. One thing I want to notice in this passage is on verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Why is that not noticeable? Because this is the first time Jesus has mentioned the gospel in that term. Since way back in the beginning of his ministry, when he said, kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. He has not said anything about the gospel until now. Why has he waited until now to mention the gospel? I think the answer that I have for that, and I think this is more of a Preston answer, is that we haven't had the full gospel yet. Again, the first part of the book is who is Jesus? You can have the answer that Jesus is the Christ. You can have the answer that he's the one from the Old Testament. But if you don't understand what he does, you don't have the gospel. If you don't understand what Jesus did, but you have a decent idea of who he is, that's not the full gospel. There's warning there. Here he mentions the gospel. 
We've come full circle on this gospel truth. Jesus, as the Son of God, came to earth to live a perfect life and die a perfect death for us imperfect, sinful people. This is the gospel, at least on an individual case, by, on a basis of our own souls being made right with God, not by our work, but by trusting in Christ's work that was finished on the cross. And as we move closer to Easter, I pray that our souls are continuing to meditate on that gospel truth as we look forward to the celebration of the resurrection of Christ come Easter morning and other mornings as well. But he really lays it out hard for us. He really throws it at us in a challenging way. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Pick up the device that is going to be your end in this world. And follow Jesus. He shows us some interesting points. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever's focus is self-preservation is going to lose that life that they're seeking to preserve. But whoever loses their life gives their life to God, it is them that will save it. For what does it profit someone, someone, a man or a woman, to gain the whole world, anything you could ever want in this world, if we lose our soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. That's a funny verse, I think. And I, whenever I think of that verse, I, the, the, the silliness of, of my mind goes to, if you've ever been on, on Facebook, and you see that verse thrown out on Facebook, and it's the share if you love Jesus, ignore if you love the devil. Have you ever seen one of those before? Is that just me? I think that's sullied this verse in many ways. If not being ashamed of Jesus is hitting a share button on a social media app, that's a really low standard. That really, really is a low standard. Notice again he mentions this adulterous and sinful generation. Last week we talked about generation. Here's another one of those generation points. What is he talking about with this generation? I think here it's the present tense, but I think it applies to us as believers now. I think what it tells us is that there is a command here to follow Jesus, not just in direction, but in our character. Not just in idea of this idea of Jesus, but who Jesus was and what he did and how our lives look like that. Do our lives look like the life of Jesus that gave everything? Have you given everything? Have you not? Is there something you've refused to give up till this point? Give everything into the hands of God? 
say, regardless of what I have or don't have, I'm willing to do all that God has commanded me to do. I think it's at this point that if we look back to the beginning of this message, that that fair-weather fan, that fair-weather Christian comes into play, doesn't it? Because we love the Jesus that is the Messiah. That's great. He's the hope of the world. Of course we love that. I, could, I, I think we would also say we love the Jesus that would sacrifice himself for us. I love that. God gave everything for me. God cares about me that much. God cares about the world that much. We love that part of Jesus. But now we got to give it all up. And this isn't just giving up of material possessions. This isn't just a giving up of money. Many times this has been used to just say, well, you need to give up all your money. You need to do all this. You need to do all that. All this sorts of stuff. And maybe that is God's leaning on your heart. I'm not getting in the way of the Spirit's work there. But I think what this also tells us is it says it's not just him. It's his words. It's what he commands us to do. If we are ashamed of what God has told us to do, then God will be ashamed of us when he comes again in the glory of his angels, when he comes at a second coming. And here is where you and I are required to look at the ways that we see the commands of Jesus and go, I don't know if I'm going to follow that one today. Eh, that one's, I'm not there yet. I might have been, I might be there eventually. I might have even been there in the past, but I'm not there right now. Are we ashamed of some of Jesus' teachings? I think on a general level, many of us would say no, but let's break it down a little bit. Are we ashamed of Jesus' teaching to forgive? To forgive all wrongdoing? Are we following Jesus' teaching? That if there is quarrel between me and another brother, then I must go to them and first reconcile? Am I ashamed of that? Do I not do that? We don't do things for a reason, right? Keep following the list. Am I ashamed of the command to be present with God's people? Or do I pick and choose when I can come and be with God's people? It's easier when it's easy. It's a lot harder when it's hard. There's times when church has been easy. There's times when church has been hard. And I'm no judge of determining an easy or hard part of church life. That's not in my hands. But I think you may have an answer to the question of, is church easy right now or is church hard right now? You may have that question and answer in your mind. My question to you is, are you willing to not be ashamed of Jesus' teachings even when it's hard? And let's expand this out. Maybe even in the case of marriage. We don't have an option, if you are married, to pull back when it's hard. We don't even have an option to pull back when it's easy. 
Is marriage easy? Great. Is marriage hard right now? Do we have the ability to pull back? We can take this into every situation of our lives. And here is where it hits home. Here is where you and I ask very serious questions of saying, am I, am I ashamed of Jesus' teaching? I wouldn't say that out loud, but my decisions, my actions may say something different, right? Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching? This isn't talking about Facebook sharing a post. I don't necessarily know if this is talking about make sure you go and share your faith, though I think that's a part of it. I'm interested in right here, right now, your soul and my soul. Where in my soul am I ashamed of Jesus' teaching? If I wouldn't say that, where does it show? In my life, with my choices, with the words that I say, with the actions I commit. Where am I ashamed of Jesus' teaching? I trust, and my prayer is that we would all ask that question of ourselves. Where am I ashamed of Jesus' teaching? Where am I a fair-weather Christian? To be a disciple of the Christ is to live by giving everything to God. To be a disciple of the Christ is to live by giving everything to God. There's not a thing we can keep to ourselves. Friendships, relationships, materials, mindsets, ideologies, beliefs. There's not a thing we can keep to ourselves and say, well, the Bible may say that, but I'm not willing to go there. Many times when we talk about believing in Jesus, we talk about Jesus, you know, coming into our hearts. And I don't think that that's, I don't like that version of salvation. I don't think that's what the scriptures tell us. And then the scriptures point us a lot closer to us surrendering ourselves to Jesus. To God giving us faith and understanding of our need for him and us saying, God, I have nothing on my own. I need all that you are. I will surrender my life to you. Where do we need to surrender our lives to Jesus, who has given us everything good that we could ever imagine or have in this world or even in the world to come? Where do we need to surrender? Where do we need to submit to our teacher? At the end of the day, to be a disciple means that we must be like the teacher. To be a disciple means that we must be like the teacher. There is not a part of us that can escape God changing us. We cannot allow that. None of our decisions, none of our thought processes, none of our assumptions, we cannot afford to let any of it escape God's work in changing us to be more like him. We cannot be content where we are. We cannot say we're good enough. God, as our teacher, as our Lord, as our Christ, as our hope for the world, expects everything from us. The beautiful thing of that is it's not just a slap on the wrist. It's a command with a promise. 
He says it in a negative way in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. There's a warning there, but we flip that to the positive. is for those that are willing, who are not ashamed of God's commands to change our lives. Us will God not be ashamed of when God comes in the glory of his angels. I don't want God to be ashamed of me when he comes to earth in his second coming, whenever that will be. There is a promise there that if we give everything to him, he will look. He will not be embarrassed by us. He will behold us. He will comfort and care be faithful to his promises. Give us everything he promised he said he would. But the scriptures here have that negative warning and we must be cautious to heed it. Jesus is the Christ, the hope of the world, the son of the living God. Jesus is the suffering servant, the son of man who came to this world to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. Jesus is everything we could ever imagine him to be, and then more so. Jesus gave everything for you and for me and for his people. Our prayer must be, Lord, you gave everything to me. Help me to give everything I have back to you. What do you need to give back to God? Both in the good times when things are going well and also in the hard times when things are rough and we need God so much more clearly then. May we be followers who are devoted to him fully holy, so that when he sees us, he is not ashamed, but he rejoices as he is reunited with his bride, the church.